Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. And on this Friday morning, first day of March, welcome to this week's Reporters Roundtable. And again, lots of news on several fronts. Yesterday in dueling photo ops, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump showed up at the southern border, each blaming the other for not fixing the problem. That came after two days after Donald Trump and Joe Biden handily won the Michigan primary. If it's not already over by now, it looks like it will be next week on Super Tuesday. And meanwhile, after stewing about it for two weeks, the Supreme Court decided to take up Donald Trump's claim that he should enjoy absolute immunity for anything he did as president. Long-serving GOP leader Mitch McConnell, facing a rebellion from some Republican senators, decided to throw in the towel instead. And at the 11th hour again, Congress managed to avoid a government shutdown by kicking the can down the road until a week from today, (laughs) where in Washington, that counts as progress. What to make of it all? Well, let's find out from today's panel. Sudeep Reddy, back with us again, Senior Managing Editor at Politico. Hello, Sudeep. Hi, Bill. Uh, Sharish Date, White House Correspondent at HuffPost. Sharish, welcome back to you, too. Thank you, Bill. And Lauren Green, joining us for the first time, congressional reporter at the National Journal. Uh, Hi, Lauren. Good to have you with us. Hey, Bill. Excited to be here. Well, so let's start with the big uh, dueling photo ops at the border. Um, Sharish, I know you were not on White House pool duty yesterday, but... I'm just curious, first of all, tell us, how long is a trip like this planned? And how is it just a coincidence that both show up at the border on the same day? No, it's not a coincidence at all. Um, and I, my my suspicion is that the Trump folks found out that the, that the president was going to go, probably from some of the, the Border Patrol people who are, uh-huh. many of whom are very loyal to Trump, and decided to hurry up and go. I mean... It, it, if you've covered the White House at all, you know that you just don't up and plan a trip like that in, in two days. That that's not a yeah, thing. So, right. um, it, it you know it, it is funny though that the Trump people said, "Well, he's he following me there." I I announced first. <laughs> okay, you know whatever. Um, in, in terms of what actually happened, I don't think anything that happened yesterday matters. What does matter is that Donald Trump is bragging about killing a border bill that gave Republicans most of what they've been clamoring for for years. And uh, although that has not really seeped into the public consciousness, um, a couple hundred million dollars worth of TV ads and social media ads, et cetera, will make it seep in. And that could actually matter. Uh, We'll Mm -hmm. see how the the Biden campaign and Democrats handle it. But that's kind of a big deal. I mean, mm-hmm. they gave away the store. I mean, they changed asylum rules. They they said, well, you, you know, even do construction of uh, of, of, the, of part of the wall again. I mean, 
come on, you gave them everything and they killed it because of, for that reason. So that's going to matter, I think. Right. Yeah. So deep. What about here? So here is President Biden at the border yesterday with his message. In fact, he kind of dared Donald Trump, right, to join him um, and uh, making it clear that they could pass this bill. Um, here, here's President Biden. The Speaker of the House needs to put this bill on the floor because if he put it on the floor, it would pass. The majority of Democrats and Republicans in both houses support this legislation until someone came along and said, don't do that, it'll benefit the incumbent. That's a hell of a way to do business in America for such a serious problem. We need to act. So, Sudeep, do you think following uh, Sharice's mess, uh, the comments there that that the White House has been able to turn this border issue around and take offense and point out that it's the Republicans who killed it? They're starting to, and that clip you just played of Joe Biden could be transplanted onto half a dozen issues in the same way, on Mm. Ukraine aid, uh, on IVF, on so many other things that have come up in just the last week or two. And that is going to be the Joe Biden message. These are policies that most most Americans would see as reasonable and rational uh, to move forward with, and most of the Congress would see as rational. And you would probably get two-thirds of the Congress on most of these moves, but uh, this is how the, the the party is being run on the right. And that we, we will basically go through the next eight months trying with Joe Biden trying to expose that and let the public see it uh, mm-hmm. and, and absorb it. And, uh, and I, I think that will break through. So you you cover the Congress, Lauren. What's your take? Would this if this bill, which passed the Senate, the we're talking about the border bill, the bipartisan bill, passed the Senate, if J- Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson, put it on the floor of the House uh, for a vote, any doubt that it would pass? Not really. I think that it has a really good chance at passing. I think that there's a lot of Democrats, obviously, that would vote for it, um, and then there's a lot of Republicans in the middle that want that. Um, kind of moved along because it's kind of been sitting for a while. Um, Republicans that are with McConnell on aid for Ukraine, um, Republicans that are for aid on Israel. Um, and so I think that it would get moving if he put it on the floor. But Johnson would, could only get a pass with the help of Democrats, correct? Yes. Lauren? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that a lot of the far right-wing Republicans would obviously be against it. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene said that if he brought it to the floor, um, that she would maybe bring a resolution to oust him, um, like they did with McCarthy. So yeah, I think that he would definitely need the help of the help of Democrats in that circumstance. So um, Donald Trump was also there with his message, um, Sudeep. Uh, it was just kind of a a strange message all over the place. Um, in addition to adding uh, Governor Greg Abbott to his list of vice presidential nominees, um, the president had something to say about the kind of people who were coming. Former president about the kind of people who are coming across the border, here he is. Nobody explained to me how allowing millions of people from places unknown, from countries unknown, who don't speak languages. We have languages coming into our country. We have nobody that even speaks those languages. They're, they're truly foreign languages. Nobody speaks them. This is amazing, Sharish. <laughs> they're speaking languages that nobody speaks. That, that that's what makes them really foreign languages, Bill. Truly <laughs> foreign. This is come on, but this really gets back to the same. Really, there's no other word for it than racist stuff that Trump started when he came down his escalator back in 2015. If you look at the actual statistics, immigrants 
of all kinds commit way fewer crimes than native-born Americans. And even illegal immigrants commit fewer crimes than native-born You know, and so it, it, it's, we would actually be better off if we deported all the violent criminals in America and took all the illegal immigrants with lower crime. So, I mean, this is, uh, yeah, it's horrible that um, the girl in Georgia got killed. It's horrible that um, it happened in D.C., et cetera. But you know what? Violent crimes happen every day all across this country, and they're disproportionately not being committed by 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 illegal immigrants, let alone legal immigrants. So expect to see this more, especially Mm -hmm. speeches written by Stephen Miller. I mean, they're almost pornographic in their detail of the violence. Remember how he just goes on about and then he slashed him open and pulled out his heart and it's just all just nasty, nasty stuff. But that's that's his staple. His audience, his rally audiences love it. Not only that, they're not speaking. They're speaking foreign languages. Um, uh, in terms of uh, the dueling presidents uh, at the border, uh, Sadiq, I can't, I, I can't resist playing a quick clip from uh, Sean Hannity. Of course, they're they were just attacking Biden for going there too late or going there at all. Is strictly a phony photo op, um, but he couldn't help. <laughs> but point out that he himself was going to the border at the same time. Here's Sean Hannity, night before their visit to the border. In the case of Biden on Thursday, a cynical, sick political stunt by the president, and frankly, it is beyond disgraceful. Uh, we will be at the border with President Trump on Thursday. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sick, uh, not disgraceful political stunt. Uh, yeah. One versus the other. Um, look, the, obviously Fox News is, is playing to, uh, is trying to maintain a certain line here that's been dented uh, throughout uh, the last few weeks. And um, the, the, the approach of trying to, to, uh, raise fears to try to get people emotionally invested by being scared is the tactic here. And yes, I think most Americans would say that the volume of people coming under a fence without proper uh, clearance is too high. Uh, but the the, uh, the the photo op cycle is pretty much dying on this one, and it's remarkable that it's dying eight months before the election. Yeah, you, you you just have to laugh at Fox News. They can't they can't accept the fact, right? That uh, anybody would catch up with Donald Trump on anything. So, uh, yeah, let's enough about the border. We almost, um, although we're getting used to this game, we almost had another government shutdown that was going to happen tonight. It didn't happen, Lauren. So tell us how did they get out of it, and how uh, how how secure are we? There won't be another shutdown next week. What happened? <laughs> Well, as of right now, it's looking like we won't have another shutdown next week. Um, they pushed the March 1st deadline to March 8th, which is the first six funding bills, and they have got appropriations for those right now. Um, so those just kind of get need to get to the floor and need to get moving, but those are looking like they'll pass um, pretty swiftly. And before the March 8th deadline, the second six got punted to March 22nd, which will be a little bit harder. They haven't um, come up with appropriations, but they're saying that they're prioritizing all of those appropriations over any foreign aid bills, at least the House is specifically saying that, um, and Mike Johnson. So kind of a toss-up on if they'll get those done by March 22nd, but 
as of right now for the March 8th deadline, we should be pretty solid. So in terms of keeping the government open and running, it looks like they're going to work out a way to do that, correct? Sounds like it. I feel like we always wait until we're right up to the deadline, but seems like we're going to do it. And again, Johnson was able to get that done because the Democrats supported him and a lot of Republicans did, but not all the Republicans. Yeah. he, um, He needed Democratic votes. Yeah, definitely. Um, it passed yesterday in the House, 320 to 99, so he definitely needed those votes. Right. But, Sudeep, as we got the shutdown resolved, that still leaves pending and hanging uh, the border bill, which includes aid to Ukraine, which has been, you know, Joe Biden's number one priority. Um, any hope around the White House that he's really going to be able to pull this off? You know, there have to be moments in in the coming weeks and months that will force some Republican action. You see uh, Ukraine having to give up the battle in certain places. I, I do think most Republicans recognize the risk here and are trying to make a political point, but they recognize the risk of this costing the United States more money since this is about Republicans articulating the cost. This is about more money and potentially more lives of Americans down the line if this is not addressed. And that will get absorbed. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like the situation has to get worse uh, in Ukraine before uh, before Republicans realize that they need this action-forcing uh, event uh, to, to step forward. But it does not look like this is going to get resolved within weeks. It might take months. Uh and uh, Sharish, at the White House, uh, there's, uh, of course, the State of the Union is next week. Um, we always get little leaks about things the president might talk about. Um, would you agree that we're probably in the State of the Union going to hear about the border bill and about Ukraine aid from the president? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, we hear about the border bill and Ukraine aid <clears throat> every time the president comes out. To, to speak to us. So, I mean, that that's yeah. not really um, a surprise when that happens. I, I think the bigger picture here is um, President Biden has to has to look sharp and he has to be uh-huh. alert and he has to look not like he's 82 years old d- during mm-hmm. his speech and that he's fully capable of doing this uh, for another several years. That's he did that last year. Remember, I mean, he came out and he 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 got the Republicans to agree with him. There'll never be any cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And that was kind of a moment for him. He's got to do something like that again, because um, uh, perhaps unfairly, that's a big issue among a lot of voters. Bigger even than January 6th, which I still find stunning that Biden is old. Therefore, we'll bring back the guy who attempted the coup. But that's where a lot of people are. So, uh, you know, uh, look for that. Look look for the presentation more than what he says. Yeah. Um, I want to get into the age issue uh, a little bit later. But uh, since you mentioned uh, someone who is showing his age, uh, we saw someone else showing his age this week when Mitch McConnell went to the floor of the Senate and basically threw in the towel, acknowledging that the politics of the Republican Party that he once knew and was once a part of have certainly changed. Here he is. I'm unconflicted about the good within our country and the irreplaceable role we play as the leader of the free world. It's why I worked so hard to get the national security package passed 
earlier this month. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. So, Deep, this is kind of the end of an era, isn't it? The end of the Reagan Republican era. It, it has been for the last uh, seven or eight years a real changing of the guard here of of what the the party stood for before and uh, what this new it, it's it doesn't even seem like the same party this new uh, uh, group looks like now and Mitch McConnell was the last one who was really thinking carefully strategically about getting his aims he's obviously not the most uh, the most uh, dynamic. Uh, fire-breathing individual in that sense, but he had a mind that knew how to get things done for the party, and it's switching over to people who want to make a lot of noise instead. And uh, we're, we're clearly witnessing that at every turn, um, but it, it will have some profound Im- implications for governance in, uh, in the coming years if there isn't a swing of the pendulum back in the other direction. Uh, and Lauren, in the last few weeks, we've heard several Republican senators say uh, it was time for Mitch to go, you know, he should resign, he ought to step down, we need new leadership. So was McConnell sort of recognizing the reality that he did not want to become another Kevin McCarthy and uh, before they threw him out, he was just going to quit? Is that what happened here, do you think? Yeah, I think that that's part of it. I think that he wanted to be one of the ones that stepped down instead of was forced down. Um I also think that there's a lot of people backing and just with the election coming up, Trump is going to have a lot to do with it. And as we've seen, he hasn't fully been the strongest Trump supporter um, out of Republicans (laughs) hardly out of Republicans in the Senate. And so I think that the election this year has a lot to do with it. I know that Trump's going to put a lot of pressure on it, just like he did with the speakership. Um, So I think that the 2024 election had a lot to do with it. And then he also mentioned, um, I think it was his um, sister-in-law that passed away that he kind of mentioned kind of was an awakening moment for him. So I think that it was a mix of all of those things that kind of opened his eyes recently. Yeah. His sister-in-law who was killed in a tragic car accident recently. And mm-hmm. uh, um, Shreesh, I, I was struck by the fact that starting with the president, uh, there were more Democrats who had nice things to say about Mitch McConnell <laughs> than Republicans. Um, so he's been leader since 2007. Yeah, it's too early maybe to say what kind of a leader history is going to remember Mitch McConnell as. I, I think a lot of that will depend on what happens in this next election. And, and if uh, if Donald Trump were to win, what sort of things he might try to pull, you know, in, in his in his first couple of years, and 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 maybe throughout the entire time, I think what Democrats realized was Mitch McConnell played hardball absolutely one hundred percent all the time, and he didn't care if you didn't like it. I mean, the the most perfect example of this is he stopped Barack Obama's um, Supreme Court nominee because he could. And then he jammed through Amy Coney yeah. Barrett because he could. And that was it. It was just naked power. That's all. I mean, nothing more to it. But he believed in democracy and he believed in the Constitution. And we saw that when he came to the floor uh, on, on, on January 7th and then again on February 13th and just laid into Donald Trump. 
mm-hmm. and said and basically invited a criminal investigation of what he had done. Remember that. And no, he didn't convict him. And, and he probably rused the day that that happened because he would uh, we would not be having a Donald Trump discussion right now if they if he had gone and convicted and brought 10 other senators with him. But still, I mean, that's something in, in today's Republican Party to, to be to agree to play by the rules and 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 adhere to the Constitution is uh, we're at this point, but it, it's a big deal. And, 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 and I think Democrats appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And they have to admire his playing hardball, even if sometimes they were the ones that got struck by a pitch, right? Or something, whatever. Oh, he, um, threw, he would throw behind your head. So <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Before we uh, take a break here and, and leave the Hill, uh, Sadiq, I got to ask you one thing. So for months, We've been told, man, when Hunter Biden comes to the House, man, we're going to roast him. We're going to rip him alive. This is going to prove that Joe Biden, the whole Biden crime family and everything. So Hunter Biden came to the Hill this week. He testified. We haven't heard a peep about it. Why why all the radio silence? What happened? Because the Republicans' case has been falling apart. Uh, There are things that they could do around Hunter Biden to make a point, uh, but they, they over, uh, overshot so much in, uh, you know, leaning on a, uh, on somebody who is now under criminal investigation, um, for, for, uh, misleading, uh, misleading the government about this. And so you've, you've got just a, a case that's unraveling because of the bad evidence they brought forward. Uh, and they could have just been hammering this along, but this is yet another uh, a, another tactical uh, political error by Republicans. Even if this, regardless of what you think of the substance, the tactics are just not working on so many fronts, and it's really quite surprising because you, you thought this one would be uh, an issue that they could carry uh, into the fall. Lauren, when you talk to House Republicans, are any of them willing to tell you off the record that? Uh, any chance of impeaching the president are just not going to happen? There hasn't really been much indication. I think that they're really holding their strong ground. I think that a lot of their constituents, this is what they're hoping for. This is kind of what they're hearing. They're feeling a lot of push for an impeachment. And so I think that right now they're just trying to not back down so that it's not an embarrassment for them since they lean so heavily into it. Uh, even today, you you find that they're holding on to it. They're the hope of impeaching him. From from the forefront, yes, I think that in the party there is obviously um, skepticism because it's their impeachment inquiries are falling apart. Um, but just from the face of it, I think that they're trying to hold their ground to not give in just yet. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 uh, they're, they're living, uh, seems to me, they're living in denial at any rate. And with that, let's take a quick break and then come back. We haven't talked about the national political scene yet. What happened in Michigan? What may what we may expect next week on Super Tuesday? Uh, and what about the Supreme Court deciding, after all, uh, to de- to take the case of uh, whether or not Donald Trump is indeed immune from his actions as president of the United States. We'll get to, to that, all of that, with our panel uh, after the break. Uh, and we'll be back with Sadiq Reddy from Politico, Sharish Date from the HuffPost, and Lauren Green from the National Journal. 
And today's Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, America's largest and most diverse labor union and a very powerful labor union at that. They have met twice with Donald Trump to consider whether or not to endorse him for president. They are meeting this next week with President Biden for the second time to uh, consider whether or not they will endorse him, um, both of Trump and Biden, of course, would very much like to have the Teamsters endorsement. We'll see how that plays out. Meanwhile, the Teamsters continue to represent every facet of America's labor movement, as they say, from A to Z, everybody from airline pilots to zookeepers, under the leadership of their new president, Sean O'Brien. Check out their website at teamsters.org. You'll be amazed at all the different levels of activity uh, and um, kinds of uh, work that the Teamsters are involved in in this country. We salute them for their great work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. And we're back on today's roundtable, today's Reporters Roundtable, with our great panel, Lauren Green, congressional reporter for the National Journal, Sudeep Reddy, Senior Managing Editor at Politico, and Sharice Date, White House Correspondent at HuffPost. So, big primary this week on Tuesday. It turned out that Donald Trump got 68% of the vote uh, to 26% for Nikki Haley. Uh, Joe Biden, 81% of the vote, but 13% went to the uncommitted slate which was led by Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib, who said she was proud to vote against her own president. Here she is on primary day. I was proud today to walk in and pull a Democratic ballot and vote uncommitted. When 74% of Democrats in Michigan support a ceasefire, yet President Biden is not hearing us, this is the way we can use our democracy to say, Listen, listen to Michigan. Uh, what do you think, Sharish? Uh, was, is this a warning sign for Joe Biden? Is this a serious problem? It, it, it's potentially a, a serious problem. This, as well as the a lot of the progressive voters, uh, young kids particularly, who, who are most interested in, in doing something about climate change. And uh, again, I'm kind of mystified by where some of these folks are coming from. Um, you know, I checked, actually, on the White House org chart. The prime minister of Israel does not report to the president of the United States. That's not actually in there. <laughs> Are right? you sure? So Are you sure? I'm positive 100 percent not there. <laughs> and so t- this idea that, that, that Joe Biden is going to tell Bibi now, no more, stop right now, and Netanyahu's going to listen. Come on, people. I mean, what is uh, – and, and – and, by the way, if you went to I went to the uh, the Jewish uh, Republican Coalition meeting out in uh, Las Vegas right after October seventh uh, last year, and there was not one single candidate still in the race, including Nikki Haley, by the way, who's still there now, uh, and Trump, who said one word, one about the Palestinians and how Israel shouldn't kill innocent Palestinians. It didn't happen. So if you think you're going to get something better by replacing Joe Biden with Donald Trump, good luck with that. I mean, just look at the four years of the Trump presidency and how much they tried to rein in Netanyahu. The answer is none. They, they, they could do all the settlements they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted in Gaza. That'll continue. So 
there's there's a bit of a, a cutting off the nose to spite the face kind of thing here. And I, maybe at some point, the um, the folks most interested in that issue as well as climate change will come around. But maybe they won't. <laughs> and in which case, Joe Biden could easily lose. How much support does Rashida Tlaib have in the um, among her colleagues in the United States House, uh, Lauren? Any sense of that? I think that she definitely has support, and there are people, especially um, farther left, that are calling for similar things that she's for the ceasefire. Mm-hmm. Yes, like she's calling for. But like Sharice said, I think that there's a lot of voters that are potentially going to sit this election out. I focus a lot on energy and environment, and I've done a lot of stories on how climate's going to affect the election this year. And kind of similar to the ceasefire, since people are experienced voter fatigue with Trump and Biden being the nominees, I think that it's kind of a race of Biden against the couch instead of Biden against Trump in a lot of their minds. Uh, Which, by the way, uh, is a serious choice. And I can't believe, uh, echoing, I think, what Sharice was saying, uh, that people who really believe about climate change um, uh, would choose the couch um, versus voting for, for Joe Biden. But Can um, I just point out here uh, uh, on, yeah, the, on, the, on the issue of, of, of energy and climate change? I mean, if anyone who listens to Donald Trump's speech, his answer to everything from paying for Social Security, from balancing the budget, et cetera, is to drill more oil. That's it. <laughs> and from the, ex- the excise tax from more oil is going to pay for everything. And if you think that's good for reducing carbon emissions, you know, I've got something to sell you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about the age issue. Um, I thought it was interesting this week that the White House seems to have realized this is an issue they have to deal with, Sudeep. Uh, and they dealt with it this week in two different ways. Uh, I'd like to play back to back. First of all, the president himself, when he went on with Seth Meyers uh, to um, celebrate Seth Meyers' 10th anniversary, um, dealing with the age issue. Uh, and then putting Gavin Newsom, governor of California, up on Meet the Press last Sunday uh, to deal with it. Uh, Biden sort of taking the humorous approach, Gavin Newsom taking uh, the facts, look what I've accomplished approach. Here they are back to back. How do you address that concern going forward as you come up to the 2024 election? Well, a couple of things. Number one, you got to take a look at the other guy. He's about as old as I am, but he can't remember his wife's name. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> It's about how old your ideas are. Look, I mean, this is a guy who wants to take us back. He wants to take us back in Roe v. Wade. Everything we've gotten done, he wants to do away with. And I really think his views on where to take America are older than... Anyway, I don't want to get It's because of his age that he's been so successful. It's because of the wisdom and the character that's developed over years that we have the Chips and Science Act, the Infrastructure Bill, and the PACT Act, and the Safer Communities Act. And because we've seen these bipartisan accomplishments, because of his capacity of understanding, because of his leadership. Uh, so, Sadeep, uh, effective messaging? It will. It is the messaging that they've got, and they've got to use surrogates. <laughs> I look, obviously, Joe Biden never, e- even in younger years, was not uh, the, the most articulate speaker. He's uh, obviously we've we've seen that. We know there's a long history behind it. What he does have is an understanding of how to actually work the machinery of government to his end. And uh, there's a reason why Joe Biden said. He, he respected Mitch McConnell 
uh, there's a reason why he was citing that because it's somebody who knows tactically how to get things done uh, and who was not exactly the greatest uh, speechifier out there. Uh, but this this is yet another uh, example, as uh, as we were just saying about how Joe Biden's campaign is in many ways against himself. Uh, it's it's can he draw those people in the two, the 2016 election and the 2000 election would have been very different if if uh, people on the left had not voted for liberal candidates who are further on the left uh, in third party uh, options. And so uh, that is the thing that does uh, really pose a risk to Joe Biden is can he keep people who are uh, younger and more liberal with him uh, just by pointing out the stark choice between him uh, and the former president? Right. Okay. So maybe we've saved the most important thing that happened this week until the very end but uh, a lot of legal analysts said there was no way the Supreme Court was even going to waste time uh, deciding whether or not Donald Trump uh, enjoyed total immunity for his actions as president. Um, they surprised a lot of people this week by saying, no, we're going to take up the case and we're going to start hearing it, hear the legal arguments on the week of April 22nd, uh, which certainly, Sharish, um, helps Donald Trump already in the sense of delay, 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 which has been his goal, correct? That, that's true. Um, it, it does push things back. However, there may be a dark cloud to that silver lining. Um, first, and not, not every legal expert that I talked to was saying that they were not going to take it. Um, a few, in mm. fact, told me that, yeah, they absolutely were going to take it. They were not going to let a circuit court opinion be the last word on something this important. Number two, you had the, the, the court down in Florida, uh, Eileen Cannon's court. They're going to come up with that same, they're going to deal with that same issue of immunity that Trump is making down there. And do you want the 11th Circuit and mm. the D.C. Circuit to be potentially in conflict? You could head that off by doing it now. Um, and then, you know, number three, there's internal court dynamics. If, 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 if John Roberts couldn't get a unanimous decision on whether to take this case or not, he probably was going to go with, all right, let's take it and deal with it and be done with it. Um, as to the dark cloud, do the math here. The absolute latest, latest that this court is going to rule on this will be the end of June, right? If they drag things out to the end, of the very end of the term. All right. So that gives you July, August, September. Judge Chutkin has already said that she's going to give him 88 days after the, the, the case comes back to her. So that puts you at the jury selection in October. Do you really want new testimony coming out about what Donald Trump did and Mark Meadows potentially on the stand, et cetera, at the end of October on a daily basis? And the only thing he can do is go outside the, the Prettyman courtroom and talk about how he's being railroaded. That's your candidate. I mean, that's potentially a, a big problem for them. And there's nothing they can do at this point. He's going to clinch the nomination in two weeks. Right. Um, and Lauren, I guess the other reality is, which is implicit in what Sarish is saying, is that during that time, um, when candidates are on the road full time, Donald Trump mm -hmm. is going to be stuck sitting in a courtroom. Yeah, it'll definitely impact the campaign. Um, like we just saw in Michigan, he did one rally there. Um, he's spent a lot of time in courts already, and there's way more looking forward. Um, there's even looking forward at the November election that he'll be in court those days. Um, and I think that that'll have a pretty big effect, but also his supporters 
show out for him. No matter, they kind of show out regardless of if he's in court or if he's there face to face. So I think that it could have a bigger effect on those on the campaign trail in the House and the Senate um, who are supporters of him because backers of Trump will kind of show their support regardless of if he's in the courthouse or not. Uh, his supporters, his base, uh, definitely will. And Sadiq, um, there is the issue, back to the Supreme Court taking this decision. Uh, here is uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, of course, uh, who led, uh, the, was the impeachment manager for the, uh, the lead impeachment manager for the second impeachment of Donald Trump, uh, pointing out that he thinks that this is all political on the part of basically a Donald Trump-dominated Supreme Court. He was on uh, Chris Hayes on MSNBC the other night. When conservative Republicans want some fast action, as in Bush versus Gore or the challenge to the student um, loan debt forgiveness policies of the Biden administration, the conservative Supreme Court justices move with Josh Hawley type speed (laughs) to make it happen. So there's no doubt that there is political will being exercised within the Supreme Court. So they can move fast when they want to, Sadiq, but they can also drag it out when they want to. And it, it, this is this is the process of exposing whether the court is going to be behaving as a nakedly political actor in this. We have seen this in other other times, but this is as clear cut of a case as you can have of whether uh, a, a president of the United States can can assassinate his opponent and be held held accountable for it. That is the case. That is the example that's been brought up in the briefs. This is uh, and in the in the hearings. And this is the case that the Supreme Court will have to decide: Is this okay? Should we have any accountability or rule of law in all of this? There may be other elements of the case that we see from the Supreme Court in terms of uh, how they want to judge this. Maybe maybe let the case go forward and and revisit it later in some other form in a nakedly political way. But this is a real true test of the court and its legitimacy. And uh, you can bet that, that Biden's team is planning for that. Yeah, uh, several people pointed out, and I think uh, Congressman Raskin did too, um, in, uh, 2020, in 2000, right, uh, the Rehnquist tort court took three days to hear Bush v. Gore to decide, debate it and decide it. Three days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it took them t- t- over two weeks to decide even whether or not they were going to hear um, the uh, Donald Trump case. So they did, in fact, drag it out. And that's a good look back. Thank you to our panel for the big week of this big, big news of this week. Again, this is Deep Ready from Politico, Shri from HuffPost, and Lauren Green from National Reporter. But before we let you go, a National Journal, I meant to say, before we let you go into your weekend, there's always one story for all of us in the news biz, running from story to story, covering and following everything, one story that stops us in our tracks uh, and makes us stop and scratch our head for a while and think about it. We call it our favorite story of the week. Um, okay, Sudeep, why don't you start us off today? You know, hold on to your seats, Bill. All right. There's a story about Donald Trump bilking his business partners. No. And it's a new one, not an old one. <laughs> Amid no. all of this chaos where Donald Trump owes uh, nearly half a billion dollars uh, in, in in a legal case, he was actually delivered this incredible lifeline through his uh, through his social media company, Truth Social, being on the cusp uh, of going public and potentially making him billions of dollars that he could use to pay off all these cases. Amid all of this, 
this week, there were three new lawsuits filed against Donald Trump uh, about <laughs> Trump and his family uh, uh, bilking his business partners and trying to steal money from them and dilute their share of what they built for no. Donald Trump. I know no. it's hard to believe. I know it's really difficult, but uh, it's really one of the most fascinating stories. It's it's the complexity of this is is dizzying, uh, but it really uh, speaks to the larger arc uh, of who, of what we've known about uh, this individual, and it has ties to that his business partners were on The Apprentice, uh, people who he made, who he then who then made him and made him all this money, and he's now screwing them uh, and trying to 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 take their money away, if you can believe it. Uh, I can't believe it. I just can't believe that. <laughs> <Donald Trump. laughs> uh, and Lauren Green and your busy work uh, at uh, Covering the Hill, what, what captured your attention? Mine's actually a little bit more or less complex. I, I'm i a huge Taylor Swift fan. And on, ah, the, Seth, okay. <laughs> on the Seth Meyers anniversary show this um, past week, um, Biden considered Taylor Swift's endorsement as classified information, which I found <laughs> very funny. Um, I think that, I mean, in all serious, she holds serious pull, especially in an endorsement oh, because yeah. she, she has such a big fan base. We've seen it um, in the NFL and with the chiefs, like her supporters ran to back them. Um, and so I think that even though she backed him in 2020, I think a 2024 endorsement would hold a lot of pull among young voters. So I thought that that was really interesting that he said that. I, I thought it was interesting that the president went out of his way to remind people that she did endorse me in 2020. Right? <laughs> yeah. So keep hope alive. I completely alive. agree. Exactly. Keep, keep hope alive. Um, <laughs> uh, and Charisse Dati, what brought you into the weekend with a favorite story? Uh, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll give that a moment. But I did want to point out, though, back in, in Bush v. Gore, yeah. the Supreme Court acted in three days because that was back when we had this idea that the electoral college vote was the end of the end of the discussion. That was it. Mm. Foolishly, mm-hmm. Al Gore didn't try to coup attempt, you know, uh, <laughs> right. later because that would have given him the presidency. So um, on the, the my, I didn't have a favorite story. I had a favorite paragraph. Okay. Uh, oh, which good. was in, in the, in the, the, the Hunter Biden deposition, um, he was asked by Matt Gates if he was on drugs when, when he was on no. the Brisbane board. And, then, and Hunter Biden looks at him, Mr. Gates, look me in the eye. You really think that's appropriate to ask me? Of all the people sitting around this table, do you think that's appropriate to ask me? Oh. Which I thought was a thing of beauty. So anyway, oh. that made my day. Oh, good for Hunter. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, that's great. Well, I have to tell you, my, my own favorite story was in the Washington Post. It was by Elizabeth Becker, who went to the south of France, southwest of France, just outside of Bordeaux, where she uh, discovered or rediscovered uh, a longtime friend of hers and a friend of mine, former Congressman Jim McDermott, who served, I think, some 28 years uh, representing Washington State in the United States Congress. He retired a few years ago. Uh, and he went on a, just a tourist visit to the south of France, fell in love with the area. Two days after he got there, he bought a house, and then he bought a share in a vineyard, and he is now a full-time resident of this little village uh, in the southwest of France with 661 people. He's living the life of an expat uh, and very happy. He said he misses his friends in Washington, misses his family in Washington State, 
but he has settled into France. And uh, I, first of all, I was glad to hear that Jim is doing well, but it also made me think that were Donald Trump ever to win another term, <laughs> Jim McDermott might have a lot of company <laughs> in the <laughs> southwest of France uh, for Americans, and even maybe some former members of Congress who, who might be looking for uh, a safe place to flee. So um, keep in touch with Jim McDermott. And with that, a great big again thank you to today's panel, Lauren Green from the National Journal, Sharish Dati, White House correspondent for HuffPost, Sudeep Reddy. Senior Managing Editor at Politico. Thank you, panelists, and thank you all of our good friends for joining us today for today's roundtable. Have a great weekend, and come back and see us on Tuesday for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. Very excited. We're going to be talking to Barbara McQuaid, who's a former U.S. attorney out in Michigan. She's now professor of law at the University of Michigan, and of course, a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and we will get her take on what the Supreme Court is up to and all of Donald Trump's legal challenges with Barbara McQuaid next Tuesday. We'll see you then for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.